Great. Uh, thanks, Johnny, and uh, thanks to David for the original invitation. Um, do you mind if I put that there so I can put my pages there? All right. Um, all right, so um, I, I'm going to focus on the VAR. My, my, my plan was to have a few maps up here, um, so just so that you have a sense of the geography. Um, the area that I'm talking about is to the south of Johannesburg, uh, and it's normally known as the VAR Triangle, uh, comprising three key industrial towns, uh, Sasselberg, uh, Vereniging and, and Van der Beel Park. The focus of this paper is the region around uh, the two latter towns that anchor the Baal Triangle, namely Vereniging and, the, and, and, and Van der Beel Park. And it is going to focus on uh, squat uh, settlements and movements uh, in the 1940s. Um, so uh, squatters have uh, been an almost permanent feature of South, African, South Africa's urban uh, history for at least the past 100 years. Yet I would, I would suggest that with a few notable exceptions, there still remains a dearth of research on the history of squatters. When squatters burst onto the urban landscape from the late 1970s, scholars such as Adler, Bonner and Malam undertook research of previous instances of squatters, focusing on the important period of the 1940s and early 1950s. They were concentrated on the causes of the explosion of, of squatter settlements or movements, and in the case of the former two, uh, namely Adler and Bonner, uh, they focus, espe focus especially on the Mpanza movement in Orlando in the late 1940s, which triggered the massive development of Soweto in the subsequent period. By contrast, the explosion of squatter or informal settlements in South Africa over the past two or three decades has generated, on the one hand, an impressive body of research that has focused almost exclusively on the contemporary causes and character of the settlements uh, or movements in the context of rapid, uh, of rapid urbanization. They have produced, in my view, important insights on informality, associational life, and the socio-political and also religious organizations operating in those settlements, but in fact has not generated the kind of historical inquiry uh, as was the case in the late 70s and early 1980s. I should add that the researching history of squatters is, is not easy, particularly because of the scant records on them. When squatters do appear in the official archives, it is invariably as an undifferentiated, pathologized mass of vagrants, menaces to peace, and most strikingly, health risks. This paper analyzes the various or differing manifestations of squatter settlements in the 1940s and, as I said, in the industrial region of the Val. Before setting out my principal arguments, I want to provide some context for the paper in terms of the, uh, my, my broader study on the Val. Uh, it is part of a broad history that I am <coughs> undertaking in an NRF chair called uh, Local Histories, Present Realities, uh, with a number of students. Um, that traces the history of the Val from, the, from its early mining uh, development in the late 19th century to the uh, democratic era. My interests are multifold, but they focus on the creation of medium-sized industrial towns, something which has been neglected in South African urban history, such as Vereeniging and Van der Beel Park, particularly in the, in the period of modernist development between the 1930s and 1960s. The consequences there are for the spatial configuration of these towns and how the black population, especially the working class, responded to these plans. 
So while the complex process of urbanisation is clearly important, my main focus is on the latter part of that process, namely when people make choices, choices about where to settle, how they organise themselves in those varied settlements, the livelihood choices they made, and how they related to the local state. So this is a local study, where the local implies shifts between the Val region, as I've explained before, and the various sub and fluid spaces constituting that area. So why the 1940s? Some of you will know that the 1940s was arguably the pivotal moment of industrial and urban development in South Africa prior to the current epoch. From the mid-1930s, the South African economy experienced an industrial revolution so that at the end of the war, secondary industry had eclipsed mining as a main contributor to the national economy. As the demand for labour surged, so too did the influx of Africans into the, into the urban areas. Between 1936 and 1946, <coughs> the African urban population increased by a massive 50%, from just over 1 million to about 1.8 million, with, with women featuring prominently as the numbers in the, er in the urban areas nearly doubled from 350,000 to 650,000. I want to highlight just three critical turning points in this regard. First, as I indicated above, was the growing preeminence of the industrial sector. Second, for the first time, the African urban population outnumbered urban whites. Third, was the massive influx of African women into the urban areas, which as various scholars have, have, have argued, uh, marked not only a fundamental shift in the gender composition of the urban population, but crucially also signaled the settlement of African families <coughs> in, the, in the cities. And although the majority of Africans in urban areas during this period were still first-generation immigrants, and migration between urban and rural areas continued to be a feature of, of many people's lives, there was a discernible and critical shift towards permanent settlement in the urban areas. The state failed throughout this period, in my view, to provide anywhere close to enough houses to meet the rapidly increasing labour supply congregating in the urban areas, especially in the PWV, what is today Gauteng, the area around Johannesburg, but also Durban and to a lesser extent uh, in other smaller urban areas. At the height of the influx of African workers to the cities in 1944, the state did not build any houses for Africans, causing a severe national housing crisis that was most concentrated uh, in the PWV area. The number of African families living without accommodation outside locations more than doubled between 1936 and 1951. And in 1947, it was estimated that, that more than 150,000 family houses uh, were required in the urban areas. As a consequence, the number of subtenants and lodges in existing locations exploded. For example, in Painville on the far east of Johannesburg, the East Rand, uh, the population increased from 5,500 in 1930 to 33,000 by 1950. 600% increase in just two decades. It's in Alexandra to the north of Johannesburg. 45,000 people were crammed uh, onto 4,400 stands, about 100 people per stand. In Orlando, where the famous Mpanza movement occurred, uh, the housing crisis was manifested uh, in the uh, rapid increase of the housing waiting list. In 1939, there were 143 names on that housing list. 
By the end of the war, that number had increased to 16,000. However, the housing crisis was most graphically revealed in the eruption of squatter movements led by grassroots community leaders in the post-war years. The most well-known of these was Mpanza's movement in Orlando. James Sofasonke Mpanza initially rallied hundreds of subtenants uh, behind the slogan Housing and Shelter for All in March 1944. He led a group of subtenants to occupy empty spaces on the periphery of what was then Orlando East. Within a week, there were 4,000 checks. By the end of 1946, the combined number of squatters involved in four movements in Orlando stood at about 30,000. Officials estimated that approximately 92,000 people joined squatter settlements around Johannesburg in 1946. Similar squatter movements sprang up across the reef, such as in Benoni. <laughs> Crucially, therefore, the peri crucially as well, the peri-urban areas were also overwhelmed by squatters. Official estimates indicate that close to 100,000 people lived in the urban uh, out, uh, lived on the urban outskirts of the PWV by the end of the Second World War, which probably increased by 1950. In Durban, uh, as Paul Malam has indicated, an extensive black belt of squatter settlements uh, had formed around the edges of the city. In Cato Manor alone, there were about 50,000 people. The important point here for me is that collectively, the illegal occupation of various urban spaces by squatters reflected the failure of the state to contain urban Africans in designated and controlled spaces. Now I want to turn to the Val and Vereniging and Van der Bale Park. From the 1930s, First Vereniging, which was established at the end of the 19th century, and then Van der Bale Park, which was created in the 1940s around the massive iron and steel corporation, became the key centers of investment by the state and private capital uh, in iron and steel plants and also coal-generated power plants. In that process, a region that had comprised a very small town, Vereniging, rel relatively small industries, as well as only two African locations, Stock Location and Everton, with an expansive peri-urban hinterland, was quickly transformed into an important urban conurbation. Again, to uh, illustrate this with uh, some data, in 1928, the African population of Reenigung stood at 3,500. By 1951, it was well over 107,000. Van der Bale Park, which was established in 1946, uh, had a population of nearly 25,000 Africans. Uh, by the 1951 census. So from the late 1930s, uh, uh, there were various plans to develop uh, new townships in Vereniging, and, and the famous Sharpel uh, was planned to be established in the mid-1940s. The authorities in Vereniging recognized that there was, in their own words, an acute problem in Vereniging, with thousands of industrial workers uh, 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 descending on the area. Uh, the establishment of, of, of Sharpville uh, was intended to accommodate no more than 7,000 people. The issue here is that there was severe housing crisis in the area. The establishment of, of Sharpville was a scheme that followed the emerging racial modernist plan of on the one hand removing contentious locations, the so-called urban black spots, and replacing them with properly planned model townships. However, in Johannesburg, Benoni, and Durban, 
the immediate impetus in the late 1940s and early 1950s behind the establishment of new extensions to Soweto, Davidton and Kwamashu respectively was to eliminate the squatting and to regularize, uh, uh, that is to place Africans in controlled spaces. This was not the case in Vereniging, which did not develop a coherent response to squatters for several years. Other than the existing location, meaning top location and later on, on, and later on Charville, and to some extent Everton, to which I will return at the end of this paper, there simply was no plan to accommodate the new influx. As a result, the local state often responded in an ad hoc manner to squatting, oscillating between violent force removal and tolerance. So in January 1942, uh, the Vereniging Town Council re uh, re reported uh, that they, uh, or noted that there was a, an uncontrolled and continuous influx of unemployed, in their words, natives into the municipal location, uh, causing, in their view, a menace to our security and peace. According to the chairman of the Native Affairs Committee, and I quote, natives, natives from all over, from all parts of the country seemed to be flocking to Vereniging. Since they had neither employment nor abode to come to, they congregated in large groups near the industries. Again, calling them vagrants and menaces to peace. So here I want to introduce the first category of squatters, who in my view had much in common with the squatter movement in Orlando and Benoni. In 1944, a few hundred new immigrants occupied an open space in Sharpville, that is the, the, the new location of Vereniging, in what was seen as a preemptive move to jump the housing queue for the new housing being constructed there. As in Orlando with the Mupanza um, movement, the basic tactic was to occupy municipal property and erect it, Masakani, a place of shacks, literally made of Hessian sacks. The aim was to assert and organize visible and permanent presence in, uh, uh, in an urban locality and force the authorities to deal with that presence. In other words, to provide them with, with municipal housing. But this occupation threatened to unsettle the carefully developed plan by the Vereniging Council to move the residents of the old location to Sharpville. As, as a result, the state moved very swiftly, forcibly, to remove the squatters and relocate them to the old location. Four years later, at dusk on Saturday, 28th of August, 1948, Mr. Gray, who owned a farm in an area, and you will see the, those of you who know the area around here were like this, in an area known as Henley on Clip, right? <laughs> Clip River, okay? Notice, and I quote, two lorries packed with natives and their belongings arrive at his farm and families and goods were offloaded. Within days, there were an estimated 300 squatters who refused to move despite warnings from the owners and the police. It transpired later that they were mobilized by a local ANC leader to occupy this particular farm because Gray, they knew, was a special justice for peace, who they believed was, was a magistrate for the area and could thus be pressured into providing them with accommodation. As in the instance in Sharpville, these squatters were forcibly removed and most of them relocated to Hammanskral, 150 kilometers north from where they were. This brings me to the second category of squatters, what some officials in Vereniging referred to as natives living under the blue sky. These were mainly young men, numbering at one point more than 1,000 
whose strategy it was to sleep in the areas surrounding the new industries in order to engage in daily searches for work. In the eyes of the authorities, they were unemployed vagrants, and over the course of a few months, these men were forced to find accommodation in one of the existing locations. Perhaps more significant was the third category of squatters, who had, during the course of the war, strategically settled on farms adjacent to the new industries. Between 400 and 500 occupied about eight farms in the area. A survey conducted, and I don't have time to go into the details, found the majority of them were families, and of course critically important, uh, and largely moved to these farms <coughs> from other places in the region during the war. The strategics have shifted closer to the, uh, to the industries. All of them had permission from the farm owners who lived there, and were therefore technically not illegal. They were of course also a source of cheap lay farm labour as well as rent. Importantly, for many of these families, a primary livelihood strategy consisted of accessing accommodation on the farms by taking up employment there either as farm labourers or domestic workers and simultaneously having one or two members of the household employed in the nearby industries. <coughs> The state response to the sort of influx and, uh, and, and occupation of multiple spaces in, uh, in and around the industries was ambivalent and also tended towards tolerance. The state recognized, on the one hand, the permanence of the squatters as an industrial labor force and therefore could not remove them from the region. In the absence of the provision of townships to accommodate them, it was forced to tolerate the presence of these squatters, at least those on the farms. However, officials constantly expressed deep concern over the fact that squatters chose these places because, in, again in their words, it offered them freedom from control on the farms compared to the urban locations. These spaces were uh, reconstituted uh, as, uh, as, as, in a certain sense, spaces of discontent or contentious spaces. My final focus, and the main focus of the paper really, how am I doing for time? Uh, you're about 20 minutes in. So okay, right, okay. Long, long way to go. Okay, is the squatters in Everton, right? Um, so I can slow down as well. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, um, so um, Everton is one of the oldest surviving African locations in the country and one of the very few where Africans were permitted to enjoy freehold tenure in South Africa. The area was owned by Eastern Adams Company, which in 1905 divided the area into plots for sale to Africans and whites. But it's one of the only areas in the country, the only urban area where Africans and whites lived in what was called the same township. Um, after considerable mobilization, white residents in the area uh, uh, by white re residents in the area, uh, the uh, Everton was eventually segregated in about 1916, with one road separating white landowners from African landowners. Everton, the African side of Everton, was declared a native reserve. Uh, unlike, and, and, and the comparison here perhaps is with Alexandra uh, to the north of Johannesburg, which was declared an urban location. Uh, where Africans were allowed to, uh, to have freehold tenure. <coughs> the key difference between that and a native reserve is that the urban regulations governing the development of urban uh, settlements for Africans did not apply uh, in this area. So a whole range 
of formal regulations that govern the lives of people in the urban locations did not affect Everton. For example, there was no white, lo no, no white local authority presided over Everton. And basically from about the mid-1920s until, in <coughs> fact, around 1960, the people of Everton campaigned for an autonomous body to run their own lives. Quite different, for example, from the health committee that controlled uh, uh, Alexandra. So there was a considerable amount of autonomy. Uh, Everton, like Alexandra, and also other locations that, uh, that, that underparted were destroyed and replaced with modern locations were spaces where new immigrants could, uh, uh, could, could basically get lost uh, and escape the surveillance of the authorities, especially with regards to labor regulations and, uh, uh, and, uh, and influx control. Uh, uh, Everton's population increased quite slowly in the first 30, 40 years of, it, of its existence, but like other areas, uh, uh, it experienced a rapid population growth uh, during the course of the war. So that in 1936, the population of Everton was 10,000, but by 1947, that figure had trebled uh, to, to 30,000. It is here in Everton, and yeah, I wish I had a map, but the map of Everton is, is seriously complicated. Um, but I, I'm talking about two areas, so, you know, just ignore what I said. Just, I'm talking about two areas. Everton is sort of one big township, and the area that I'm going to talk about is separated by no more than a dirt road. Right? So it's adjacent to, to Everton, and when people talk about this, they talk about Everton as if it's one place, but in fact, uh, it, has, uh, um, it was governed differently. The area that I'm going to talk about was not governed by the uh, uh, native reserve uh, legislation. It was a piece of privately owned land, although the people didn't imagine it that way. This year, uh, that in my view, the most significant squatter settlement existed between 1946 and 1951. The cast of characters involved in this drama included two aging widows, white land speculators, a law firm that today claims to be Africa's largest, aspirant African landowners, an organization called Eye of the City. Every tier of the judiciary, from local magistrate to the full bench of the appeals court, plus an array of factions within the squatter community and of course, Various and, and, and of course various local and national officials from the Department of Native Affairs. No, no, notably absent from this were the formal political organizations of African resistance, the African National Congress and the Communist Party of South Africa. Despite local officials sometimes wondering whether Everton was part of a broader communist conspiracy. Here it is only possible to provide an outline of the main events. In 1938, the widows of the original landowners, Adam and Easton, decided to sell the rest of the land to Africans. They were, you know, quite old and, uh, and were basically sort of, uh, you know, trying to, to earn some money uh, in the last years. This transaction uh, was handled by the famous law firm Edward Nathan and Friedland, now Sonnenberg, which those of you from South Africa will know, the ad saying that they are by far the biggest law firm in Africa. Uh, e and F, and I've, as I'll refer to the law firm from now on, had, had in fact been involved uh, in land deals in this area since 1912. The state approved the, the deal to sell the land in 1941, and the land, 
Eastonville, formerly, was transferred to the ownership of the law firm, subject to various conditions, including, very importantly, that plots uh, of land measuring an acre could not be sold for more than 50 pounds. Critically, however, the state delayed the formal promulgation of the area as a native township, creating a legal conundrum. As the land was privately owned, the law firm could formally sell plots to Africans, but they were not allowed to occupy or build houses on the plots until the declaration of an African township. Into the land speculators. The main figure here was a Mr. H. H. Gluckman, an associate of the law firm, but not actually a lawyer, although he claimed to be a lawyer when he spoke to <coughs> the African residents. But he was also the joint owner of a couple of farms in close proximity to Everton, which he had in fact inherited from his father. The rapid population increase in the area generated, of course, a huge demand for land. In Everton, it pushed up the price of properties. In the old location, plots were being sold between residents for between £150 and £350. ENF, the law firm itself, tried to persuade the authorities to change the remit of its, uh, of, 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 uh, of, of its plans in order to allow it to sell plots which it wanted to reduce by half the original size at £80. In 1942, Gluckman took deposits from about 150 to 200 African residents for plots in an undisclosed area, promising them ownership of these plots <coughs> as soon as the township was declared an African area. When it became clear in 1946 that the state was dithering over the proclamation of the area as an African township, and Gluckman's schemes was being exposed by residents, he attempted to repay the deposits, which had of course been sitting in his private account for three to four years. At this point, critically, the depositors, led by the organization Eye of the City, decided to refuse the reimbursement, to occupy the nearest land available, mainly Easternville, and to assert what they perceived to be their right as owners of plots. Events now unfolded at a rapid pace. On the 1st of August, the authorities noticed about 10 shanties or so. A week later, there were more than 120 shanties and about 600 people. In March the following year, there were 400 shacks and 2,000 people living on the camp. A detailed survey revealed that people had rushed into Everton from all over Vereniging, but also from Johannesburg, the East Rand, the Orange Free State and Natal. It suddenly become a magnet. I want you to say a few things about the key organisation because I think that uh, a lot of the literature focusing on squatters uh, gives scant attention to sort of the internal organisation uh, of these movements and Eye of the City gives us some sense uh, like the Mpanza movement of the kind of autonomous organisation established uh, by squatter movements. The Eye of the City uh, was in fact an association uh, of about 11 members with uh, a very colourful character called Elias Nkhebe as his chairman. Uh, it had collected two pounds as an entry fee for people to come into the camp as well <coughs> as a monthly subscription to provide sanitation and health services. It dug wells for water and also paid the wages for what they called police boys employed by the committee. So the idea of order, 
controlling health was critical. Funds, and very importantly, uh, were also collected constantly to employ the services of a law firm, in this case, not, uh, the, uh, not ENF. Even the authorities acknowledged that, in their words, that there was a better class of natives living in the squatter camp, very different from the way it portrayed squatters elsewhere, and that the informal dwellings that were erected in this new area uh, were erected in, in, in clearly, clearly demarcated spaces and in neat rows, in neat rows, and that latrines and water uh, were being provided to the people. In its sort of formal constitution, the eye of the city or the, or the regulations of, of the area uh, put down uh, some of the, uh, of the following rules. <coughs> I'm going to mention a few of them. Uh, first of all, it insisted that all the dwellers in this village are, uh, uh, should only be people who had deposited money uh, with the land speculator, distinguishing itself uh, very clearly from any other kind of shanty uh, development. But very importantly, it also forbade uh, beer brewing in the township. Now, this is sort of unusual, right? Uh, because beer brewing was absolutely critical, uh, uh, a, a critical, you know, informal economic activity uh, in all of these settlements. No fighting, right? Uh, people needed to cooperate with the police, uh, and uh, there should be uh, no trading. Uh, 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 between Africans and Europeans. <coughs> now, uh, there are a whole list of other things, but there are two key things uh, in terms of this regulation. The first one was that it wanted to establish order, right? uh, and, this was, uh, and this was critical. And secondly, that it wanted to uh, provide uh, the kinds of services that would uh, constitute this place as a formal settlement. Right? So, uh, you know, the provision of latrines, of, uh, of water and so on, were absolutely key parts uh, of, of the functioning uh, of, the, uh, of, of the eye to the city. Uh, now, how did the state react to this? Uh, on the one hand, it was perturbed and threatened constantly to remove the people. But it also realized that they could do nothing uh, until uh, uh, they could do nothing with the people because this was private land. However, from 1948, and I'm, I'm skipping sort of you know two or three uh, you know key years, uh, from 1948, uh, when the law firm agreed that the squatters should be removed and thereby rendering them uh, rendering the occupation illi illegal, the state attempted to invoke special war measures that would permit them to remove squatters. Without the, without the obligation of providing alternative <coughs> accommodation. It is this process uh, that was legally challenged and took nearly three years to resolve. Um, and uh, the uh, eye of the city, together with the law firm, every time the state attempted to uh, forcibly to remove them, you know, brought in you know, hundreds of policemen, they would basically challenge uh, the, uh, the validity of the um, 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 of the removals uh, in court, taking it as I said, you know, from uh, magistrates level to the provincial uh, court, then to the supreme court, and eventually uh, the appeals division. Uh, that finally, in 1951, uh, decided in favour uh, of the authorities after quite a complicated uh, uh, process, uh, which we don't have time to uh, uh, to go into. So. Um, 
Let me make uh, a few uh, concluding remarks uh, in terms of the general approach that I'm taking. As I said at the beginning, um, uh, much of the literature on squatter movements, uh, uh, even those focusing on the Mpanza movement, the squatter movements in Benoni, as well as the black belt around, um, around Durban, uh, have given scant attention to these uh, varied experiences of, uh, of, of squatter movements. They're often regarded as a homogenous mass, as part of a movement um, led by uh, one or other charismatic uh, leader. And while that dimension is important, uh, what I think the experience in the Val uh, shows is that squatters made particular choices, occupied particular kinds of land and spaces um, that uh, gave them a very, very character. They made particular choices about where they should be and how to organize, uh, and how to organize their, uh, their lives. Importantly, uh, and in the context of rapid urbanization, as well as a relatively weak local state, because we must remember that Vereniging, unlike Johannesburg, did not have the a strong local authority. Uh, for those of you who are familiar with the Mpanza movement, as soon as Mpanza occupied the space in Soweto, um, the Johannesburg municipality led by, uh, led by car intervened immediately and set up alternative camps uh, to, to try and uh, break the authority of Mpanza's movement. It wasn't very successful initially, but it had the capacity to act uh, fairly quickly. In Vereniging, that wasn't the case. In fact, the, the squatters were able to use the relative weakness of the state uh, to engage in, uh, uh, in, uh, in various forms of, of, uh, of squatting uh, and to pursue the interests in different forms. As I indicated legally, uh, the astute utilization of private farms and what I think one may, one may call guerrilla squatting, uh, where they sort of invaded uh, you know, farms, were removed from those farms, were moved to Hammanskal and other places and simply returned. And it was a wave and wave uh, of, of this kind of guerrilla squatting that occurred uh, in the late 1940s. Again, which I've not had uh, you know, much time to focus on. Finally, um, and uh, despite the efforts by the authorities, including increasingly uh, the involvement of the central government in trying to regularize squatting in the Vile Triangle, the problem of squatting in this area persisted well into the 1960s, despite the fact that the newly created Van der Bale Park created two, sham, uh, new, uh, two townships, Boipatong and Bopelong, uh, in the mid-1950s. It was only with the creation of Sebukeng in the mid-1960s that the problem of squatting was finally settled. <coughs> but as we know, the control of a squatting uh, that, that resulted from the establishment of Sebukeng lasted only a decade because from the late 1970s again, squatting exploded uh, and uh, has, has remained a key feature uh, of urban South Africa. Thank you. Thank you.